You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Genesis 25, we'll begin reading with the 19th verse and read to the conclusion of the chapter. Genesis 25, verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Heavenly Father, we look to you, Father, and we ask that you would be pleased, Lord, to bless us as we seek to study your word. We recognize our utter dependence and need for you, O Father, to teach us, to quicken our hearts that are so slow to see spiritual things. O Father, to work in our hearts that this wouldn't just be a mere mental exercise or academic experience, but that, Father, this would truly be Uh, something that changes us and saves us, uh, something that, uh, oh, Father, makes us more and more like Jesus. So, Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I want to begin this morning by pointing out a phrase that I've made some mention to in the course of our study, and I passed over it kind of quickly last week, really thinking of it with intentions of bringing it up this week. Uh, for reasons I think that will become clear in a moment. But the phrase that I'm thinking of is in verse 19, the phrase, these are the generations. Uh, The Holy Spirit has put an outline, if you will, into the book of Genesis. And uh, in fact, uh, I think I mentioned this last week, that the name Genesis actually stems from this outline. Uh, These are the generations in the Hebrew, the word teledoth is used And when the uh, Greek translators translated the Hebrew into 
uh, Greek, they use the word genesis. And if you listen to genesis, you might say, well, that sounds kind of like Genesis or Genesis, Genesis. And that's correct. The word Genesis, the name of the book comes from this outline. And we could think of this as the genealogy. We could think of this as the generations. We could even think of this as the account. Sometimes it's maybe easier for us, especially as we're thinking through the outline of this book, maybe to think of the account. Let me give you an example. Keep, we're going to have to flip through some pages this morning in Genesis, but keep your bulletin in Genesis 25 and turn back to Genesis 2 and verse 4, where we find the first occurrence of this phrase. Genesis 2 and verse 4. There you, you see that phrase. Genesis 2, verse 4, these are the what? These, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And we think generations, I don't think of like stars and what have you as having an, any kind of genealogy. Well, think of it as the account. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. And of course, what has God been doing? He's, he, you know, he's giving us an account, a creation account, the accounting of the origin of the world in which we live in. You know, I've been slowly taking the kids through this on Wednesday nights. It's just so much fun. I, I, I think Genesis 1 is so much fun with children. You know, you can have so much fun with, look up at this guy. Why is this guy blue? It's not a bank. You can have so much fun with that. Uh, what is this all about? The account. This is the account of creation. It's the account of the world in which we live in. And then when you turn to Genesis 5... And verse 1, notice what we have there. Genesis 5, verse 1. This is the book of what? The generations, the generations or the account of Adam, if you will. So we have the account of the creation of the world. We have the account of Adam, if you will. The account of Adam. And now if you turn the page a little bit more to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9, Notice what you have in third place here. These are the generations of who? Of Noah. And we have the, we have the account of the, 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 the flood narrative, if you will, from Genesis 6 through Genesis 9. And that brings us to Genesis 10. And when you get to Genesis 10, what do you have there? Verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So we have another section, if you will. Now, if you, if you uh, turn the page to chapter 11, um, it's chapter 11. Yeah, chapter 11, verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. And if you look at towards the end of chapter 11 to verse 27, these are the generations of who? Terah. Yeah. And then if you go back to chapter 25 and verse 19, or verse, let's look at verse 12 first. These are the generations of Ishmael. And then verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac. And there are two more. There is another one that will concern the generation of Esau coming up, and there's one that will concern the generation of Jacob coming up. So we have two more, 10 in total, uh, 10 little outlines, if you will. Um, now, let's think this through a little bit, because I think this really sets us up. It sets us up, especially for understanding what's coming uh, at the end of chapter 25. 
Think it through. First, we have the accounting of the world, the, the universe, the heavens, the earth, the whole, the whole nine yards, everything that has been created, everything that was made that has been made. We have this accounting of it. And then we have the accounting of Adam. And with the accounting of Adam, what do we have? Well, you have the creation of the first man and the whole idea of him being God's vice regent in this, uh, in this world, if you will. Uh, we have the accounting of the fall of mankind. And we have the accounting of the promise, Genesis 3.15, which while we're flipping around, I, I mentioned your th- Genesis 3.15 all the time, but we haven't read it recently. Let's read it just to refresh our memories of what Genesis 3.15 even says. Genesis 3, verse 15. Here the Lord is speaking to Satan himself, and he promises that he will put enmity between Satan and the woman and between the offspring of Satan and her offspring. And this uh, this son, if you will, this offspring, shall bruise Satan's head, and but Satan shall bruise his heel. So here in the accounting of Adam, we have this promise of the son. We have really the first record of the gospel right here. No sooner has has Adam and Eve fallen in the garden and we have the gospel being pronounced right here. We see, we begin to see the covenant of grace. So we have the, the creation of the world, the account of Adam. Then after the account of Adam, in, in the midst of the account of Adam, we have the fall of mankind. Uh, then we see the, the, just the degeneration of mankind and we come to Noah. And we have the account of Noah where the Lord uh, uh, basically gets to a point where he will no longer tolerate uh, the sin of man. And we have a preview, if you will, or um, uh, a preview would be a good word uh, for the final judgment where God destroys the entire world, uh, save Noah and his family. And that brings us to the account of Shem, Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah. And here, uh, Noah is kind of a, a second Adam, uh, another Adam, if you will, uh, in regards that it is really through Noah that the rest of the earth is recreated. And we have Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So here we see the repopulation of the world. But then the narrative begins to zoom in, kind of like your Google Earth. You know, you can see the earth, but then you begin to zoom in on what it is you want to look at. Begins to zoom in, namely on one particular line, the line of Shem. What is significant about the line of Shem? It is through the line of Shem that Genesis 3.15 will be fulfilled. It's through the line of Shem that the Messiah will come. And this, this, this Google Earth, if you will, this zooming in, uh, if you will, continues to zoom in to the next section, which is the line of Terah. Now here we're zooming in even more. Now what's significant about the line of Terah? Abraham. And we've been studying him for many, many weeks, haven't we? And, of course, uh, Abraham has two sons, and we see the generation of um, Ishmael in verse 12 of our text. Um, Ishmael actually is going to become other nations, if you will. But we know that the covenant, the covenant God has said is with Isaac. So you see the text is now following that thread, if you will, zooming in on that thread of the genealogical line of Jesus Christ. So here we have, these are the generations of Isaac. Abraham's son, back to verse 19, chapter 25, that is. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. 
Abraham fathered Isaac. Now, when we read those words in lieu of what we've been studying for many, many weeks, what are we thinking about? We're thinking about that whole journey that that Abraham and, and Sarai went through. You know, you figure those 25 years of waiting for a son. Uh, here it's just simply said, Abraham fathered Isaac. How did he father Isaac? It was completely miraculous. That's how he fathered Isaac. He fathers Isaac at 100 years of age, his wife being, being 90. Completely miraculous. And it's been made clear that God has made very clear that his covenant is with Isaac. Isaac is the chosen one, just as his father was the chosen one. Even the name Abraham reminds us of this. If we go back to chapter 11, who is Abraham? He's just, some, he's just another idolater in a whole uh, population of idolaters, and God calls Abraham to himself and makes these promises with him. And Isaac the same way. The Lord chooses Isaac. My covenant will be with Isaac. Isaac. And we're told in verse 20, when Isaac was 40 years old, he took Rebekah to be his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Pat and Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean. And that takes us back to Genesis 24. And we can think of the, really the miracle of that. If we go back to Genesis 24, and let's just do that for a moment. Turn the page back to Genesis 24. And here, this servant, you know, he, just to jog our memories, and in the event that someone didn't hear that message, you know, the, uh, here Abraham, and his, he's advanced in years, he gives this task to his servant, his most trusted servant. I want you to go back to my home country, and I want you to go take a wife from my son Isaac and bring her here. And you think of the magnitude of that task. Could you imagine being given that task? Hey, I want you to go up to Canada, and I want you to go back to the, my, my folks, or go back over to, in my case, it'd be go, go back over to the, the Scottish-Irish there, and I want, you to take a, uh, I want you to take a wife and bring her back across the pond and uh, um, uh, bring her back to marry my son. Well, yeah, I'm sure there's just a bunch of lovely ladies over there in, in Scotland who would just be delighted to come over and marry a man they've never set eyes on. You know, you think of the task. And here we see this, uh, here we see this, this servant. He, he, he goes into the city of Nahor, like he is instructed. And he goes, it was very brilliant. You know, he, he goes with the task of picking up, he has to pick up, he has to meet ladies, doesn't he? That's going to be the first thing he's got to do. And what does he do? He goes to the well. And in verse 14, notice how he prays. I pointed this out when we were studying this text. He prays to the Lord in verse 14, chapter 24. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say drink and I will water. I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have what? Appointed. That's the point I'm trying to make. The one whom you have appointed for your servant, Isaac. Abraham, chosen. Isaac, chosen. Rebecca, chosen. I've been trying to give you like one word summaries of chapters when I can. And last week I gave you the one word summary of verses 1 through 18, which was faithful. Faithful. God shows himself in, in those verses to be so abundantly, perfectly faithful. And that's why I titled last week's sermon, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Because he is so faithful, we can trust him. 
Everything he says is going to come to pass, and every promise that he makes will come to fruition. And that's an important part of what we're coming to here now. If I was going to make a one-word summary of verses 19 through, uh, I would say probably through verse 23 maybe, uh, verse 26, maybe through verse 26, I would say it's the word election. Election. God's sovereign choice. Here we see Abraham is chosen. Isaac is chosen. Rebekah is chosen. And then notice in verse 21, okay, Isaac and, and Rebekah are married. Isaac is 40 years old when they're married. And Isaac prays to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, we read those verses in passing. We think, okay, they run into a little snag. Um, uh, Isaac prays and the Lord answers his prayer. You know, a couple of years down the pike, uh, she has a child. But no, if you look down to verse 26, you see that Isaac is going to be 60 years old before he bears or before Rebecca bears children. I, I think we can see here that Isaac is praying for the better part of 20 years. That's a long time. Especially if you want to have kids. I don't have children. I don't have children now. I don't want to have children 20 years from now. I don't want to have children now. And what's God up to there? God is showing that it's not by human will or husband's decision. That's what he's showing here. He is showing that I build my church. That's what he's showing. It's not going to be as simple as getting married here. That's not how we're building this thing. That's not how we're doing this. When God was pleased in his time, he gave them children. And notice in verse 22, we're told that the children struggled together. There's a struggle. There's a struggle within her. Rebecca notices the struggle within her. It confuses her. She wonders why it is happening. So she goes and inquires of the Lord. And in verse 23, the Lord answers her and says to her, there are two nations in her womb. There are two peoples within her and they shall be divided. One is stronger than the other, but the older shall serve the younger. And here's a, a bit of prophecy that the Lord's getting. And what do we learn from the first half of Genesis 25? We learn to pay attention to what God says. We're reminded to pay attention because when he says something's going to come to pass, it's going to come to pass, just like he says it's going to come to pass. And there's something unusual about this. First of all, these two brothers are divided. They're going to be two different people. There's two different nations in your womb, Rebecca. And what's really unusual is, well, one will be stronger than the other. That's maybe not so unusual. But what is, going, what is really unusual is that the younger will serve the or the, the older will serve the younger. That is highly unusual, as we'll see here in the place. In verse 24, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. We're told in verse 25, the first came out red, all, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. And afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Now you see, you can, you can even see that tension. You can even see the younger trying to over, overcome the older, even in, in, on the birth table. You, you see that, just like God said it would be. Now, in verse 27, we have a narrative that concerns Esau and Jacob. 
And here uh, we're told that when the boys grew up, that Esau, he grew into a skillful hunter. He becomes a man of the field. His brother Jacob, rather, is verse 27, is a quiet man dwelling in tents. And actually, in this narrative, we learn a lot about these, these two brothers who are, in some respects, exactly alike. They're both hunters. But in other respects, they're so radically different. Uh, Esau is an outdoorsman, you know, the rugged outdoorsman type, you know. He's the guy that's into sports. He's the guy that's, you know, he's wanting to be outside. Uh, he's the shallow thinker. He's, the, he's a superficial guy, as we're going to see. Uh, he doesn't think things through. Um, uh, he, he's not very contemplative, if you will. But in, the, but in contrast, Jacob, Jacob's the quiet type. He's the conniving type. He's the type sitting around uh, playing life as a chess game, if you will. He's the one thinking things through, uh, conniving, if you will. He's more of the domesticated type. He's the one that's going to be inside doing, uh, doing things, prefers the indoors, if you will. And uh, verse 28 gives us a little snapshot of domestic life in, the, in Isaac's residence. We're told that Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And here, you know, one of the things I really love about the Bible is unlike like many biographies that you'll read that say nothing negative about the person that you're reading about, everything's all positive and they're great and they're this and they're that. The Bible doesn't do that, does it? You notice how, how transparent the Bible is. Here we see parental favoritism in this. In this. You know, here... You know, Esau's a daddy's boy and Jacob's mommy's boy. That's, you know, and that's dreadful, isn't it? It's, it's a dreadful thing to, to have this favoritism that we see taking place here. So, you know, at, at the end of the day, when we review the course of our, our own activities throughout the day and we think of all of the sin and we think that we've committed sin in thought and word and deed and we think about our own character flaws, uh, it, it to me is kind of comforting that we can go back and look at some of these patriarchs and see, you know, they, they weren't perfect either. They weren't perfect either. By, not by a long shot. Now, in verse 29, we're told a story that once when Jacob was inside cooking stew, Esau, he's been outside. Uh, he comes in from the field. We're told that he's exhausted. Verse 30, Esau says to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Uh, therefore, his name shall be called Edom, if you will. If you look, there's probably a footnote in your Bible. Many of you have a footnote and say the that says something like the word Edom sounds like the Hebrew word for red. Um, Jacob in verse thirty one has been waiting for this opportunity. Like I say, they they I've, I've spoken about their differences, but they have one thing in common: they're both hunters. They don't 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 think for a second that Jacob is no hunter. Jacob is very much a hunter. He's hunting his brothers who he's hunting. Uh, neither one of these characters are characters you want to imitate. This is not to be imitated. These are two really, um, well, I'll leave it at that, okay? That's far enough. This is not something, this, it's ugly. Notice what Jacob says to his brother. He says, sell me your birthright. You want some stew? Sell me your birthright. 
Well, what's Esau say? Verse 32, I'm about to die. What use is my birthright? Jacob says, verse 33, nah, he wants to clinch the deal. This is not small talk here. Jacob is serious. He says in verse 33, swear to me and swear to me now. Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Now, what is the big deal here? Let's think about how the book of Genesis has been going. Let's go back to the beginning. These are the generations. Creation account. Adam, fall, promise of a son. Noah, reminding of where humanity is and its degeneration. Then judgment, but salvation all in the same, where one family is saved. Then repopulation through Shem, Hem, and Japheth. And then... We see it zeroing in on one particular family line, Shem, Terah, Isaac. Now, in the account of Terah, we have Abraham. All of these promises made to Abraham. What promises? Promises of land. Promises of uh, uh, kings are going to come from you, Abraham. Nations are going to come from you, Abraham. All of the families of the world will be blessed by you, Abraham. Out of you will will come a son. Son with a lowercase s, that is Isaac, but also son with a capital S. Genesis 3.15. Now, When that baton got passed to the next generation, that baton got passed to Isaac. Now, in this culture, Esau is the oldest, and in this culture, he would be the recipient of not a single amount of inheritance, but a double inheritance. And what is he in line to inherit? All of the promises made to his grandfather, Abraham, the whole covenant thing, is rightfully Esau's, at least by by the rules of the land. Well, how's Esau treat that? Doesn't even care. He's not a guy that thinks very much. He's a guy that's, you know, he's into sports, you know, he's into he's into all this other nothing there's anything wrong with being in sports. Don't misunderstand me. But he's just consumed. He's out outdoors, you know, rugged, you know, doesn't think things through, not very spiritually. He's one of those guys, you know, you're not going to have much of a spiritual conversation with. What good is my birthright to me? What good is that? He wants the stew. He wants immediate gratification, and he wants it now. All he can think about is his belly. Jacob, on the other hand, Jacob understands this. Jacob understands what's going on. And really, the promise has already been made. I don't have any doubts. I know one commentator I read, I I don't remember who, but he pointed out that there's little doubt that Rebecca did not share this prophecy with Jacob. Come on, Jacob is mama's boy. In those quiet moments when they're together, you know, the Lord spoke to me before you were born, and he told me your brother will serve you. Jacob didn't need to. 
Jacob didn't need to do this. And think about what he's doing to his brother. We need to be on about the salvation of our brothers, not on about the destruction of them. He's on about the destruction of them. He's so consumed with himself that he's willing to, he's willing to destroy his brother to advance his own cause. That's exactly what happens. Jacob has a role in destroying his brother. He has a role in it. Now, if verses 19 through 26, if you will, if we could summarize these verses with election, then I would say that we could summarize verses 27 through 34 with responsibility. Election, divine sovereign election, sovereign choice, the sovereign choosing of God, verses 19 through 26. But verses 27 through 34, human responsibility before the promises and faithfulness of God. And that ties it in with the beginning of the chapter and ties it in with the rest of the book, you see. And what kind of application can we make of this? Well, I've already mentioned some. One is God is showing us that he builds his church. God builds his church. It's of his sovereign choice, his sovereign grace, his sovereign mercy, his sovereign and saving power. That's how the church gets built. It's God's sovereign choice. It's God's saving power, his mercy, his grace for sure. But our text also teaches us that as human, as human beings, we are responsible. We are responsible. And what are we to make of Esau? How do we apply Esau? I, I think the first application that we want to make with Esau is not outside of the church. If we're thinking of Esau as some kind of heathen guy, I don't think we're getting, I don't think that's quite right. I don't think we should think of him as a heathen. He grew up in a covenant home. I think we ought to think of Esau as a church kid here. I, I don't think that we should properly think of him because think of all of the blessings that Esau has had. Who is his daddy? Who is his granddaddy? Think of the stories that he heard around the campfires over the years. The heathens across town aren't hearing those stories. The heathens across town, they, they, they didn't have any of this. I'd say, no, the first, the first application we want to make of Esau is right here, right now in the church. And in, in any given church of any given size, there are Esau's who are sitting in it. Who would be the Esau's who sit in? People who hear all the stories. People who hear the gospel. But people who would sell the gospel for a bowl of stew. In other words, it's not, it's not connecting. The rubber of the gospel is not hitting the road of the heart. It wouldn't be hard to find an Esau in a congregation in America, would it? Not at all. Not at all. I think, secondly, we can make another application that would go beyond the walls of the church to our general culture. And it's an application. Dr. Boyce made this application back in 1985. As my guess is when this sermon was preached in 1985, almost 35 years ago. And the, the point that he was making is in this country, there is a Bible everywhere. 
And you even have your choice of translation. You can get, he named a number of translations that were available at that time. And when I was reading that earlier this week, I was thinking, oh boy, now we, we, we've got the translations now. In fact, we get, every other day it seems like there's a must-have for every pastor's study Bible. This is a must-have study Bible. You've got to have that. I think to myself, really? I mean, this must, all these must-have books, if I sat down and tried to read all these must-have books, listen, you're not going to get a sermon this morning because I've got to get through the rest of the must-have books. I can't read fast enough to read all the must-have books. And I think the people that write these things, why are they put, well, must-have. This must be in every pastor's study. I can order it. It's going to be on the shelf somewhere with a bunch of other books I haven't had time to get to read. I've slowed down on that. We can't afford to keep doing that. What was my point? (laughs) My point is this. We have today... Most of us, one of these. And with one of these cell phones, we can find holy teaching at our fingertips. It is available everywhere. And what I so loved about reading that old sermon of... uh, James Boyce, as he made a reference to one of my favorites, R.C. Sproul. And he said, now this was a few years ago. Now we're talking probably about 1985, and it's a few years ago. I don't know if many of you know it, but R.C. Sproul grew up just outside of Pittsburgh, up in the Donovoy area. And Ligonier Ministries comes from the Ligonier Study Center, and that comes from Ligonier, Pennsylvania. That's how all that started. And R.C. Sproul, way back in the day, lived in Pittsburgh, and he used to travel, and he used to come to Geneva College and speak quite often. And I, that's, that's my heart. I, I'm a, uh, in fact, one of the young men that was with us Friday night uh, came with uh, Dean and his family is uh, uh, Scott Scheidelmantel's son. Dr. Scheidelmantel is a friend of mine. He was once one of my professors at Geneva College. Love that place. Love that school. Love those people. R.C. Spoh used to come to Geneva College to teach and on one particular more, uh, day after teaching at Geneva College, he's riding the bus back to Pittsburgh, going through what he described as all these little washed-up towns. And we, can, we live around here. We can envision the route that he took. You know, he's riding up along the Ohio River, all these little river towns. And he is taking in all of the grumbling of the people that are getting on the bus. Now, we can really take that in. All the negativity and all of the just gloom and doom speech of everybody. And R.C. Sproul's sitting in the backseat of the bus watching everybody. And he says to himself, is there any hope in this place? And he decides, I'm, gonna ha- I'm just going to do this little exercise just to pass the time away. I'm going to look for hope. I'm going to see if I can find some hope here. And he no sooner said it, and the bus stopped, and he looked out, and there was a storefront church with a big cross on it. And he smiled, and he thought, there's hope right there. As more people are getting on the bus grumbling, and more people are getting off the bus grumbling, the bus continues on, and it isn't no time before he sees another church, and another church, and another church. And a woman with a a necklace with a big cross hanging from her neck. And he says, there's hope all around us. It's everywhere. Esau had hope all over, all around him. 
I, I got to say, you, you know, um, over the last 20 years, trying to think of every way that I could think of to try to share the gospel. And sharing the gospel much of the time is like playing ping pong by yourself. Have you ever done that? I mean, I have, actually. There was a ping pong table in the basement of the seminary. And I'll admit, I was down there alone a couple of times and I actually swatted the ball across and went over and picked it up and swatted the ball across again. And sharing the gospel has often been like that. You swat the ball across the table and they just let it fall on the floor. And you walk around to the other side of the table and you pick it up and you swat it back to your side. And then you walk back over to the table and you swat it back over to their side. It falls on the floor. What happened to Esau? What become of Esau? Does anybody know? Hebrews 12. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Do you see that? Hebrews 12 verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like who? Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Verse 17. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. What happened to Esau? Esau is lost. This afternoon, when you're relaxing or doing whatever it is that you have to do this afternoon, maybe some of you have to go to work. But whatever it is that we're doing this afternoon, Esau still exists. And he is just as lost this afternoon as he was 4,000 years ago when he sold his birthright for that pot of stew. I've been doing this long enough now that some of the people that I've been swatting that ping pong ball to have passed away. I've swatted the ping pong ball over. They've watched it fall on the floor. I've picked it up and I've swatted it back and I've swatted it back over. And they've watched it fall on the floor. And to my knowledge, and I'm happy that I don't have knowledge of all things because I'm hoping somebody swatted the ball to them and they swatted it back. But to my knowledge, they never picked it up and they never swatted it back. And they have since passed away. You do this long enough and that's what starts happening. And if they passed away, having never picked that ball up and swatted it back, then they're with Esau. That's where they are. And 4,000 years from now, they're still going to be as lost as they are today. And I can't help but to think maybe that should become part of our gospel presentation these days. 
quit screwing around with football and all of these trivial things while your soul hangs in the balance. What is wrong with you? Look at Esau. You're playing games with fire. This is serious stuff. I think that needs to start becoming part of our presentation, don't you? Esau, I'll leave you with this last point. Esau doesn't believe there's anything to worry about. I can tell you right now, go talk to the Esau's. Go talk to him right after this. I'm going to tell you, there's one thing in common with every one of them you're going to talk to. They believe this. There's nothing to worry about. Where do I get this from? Look what, look, look at the text. Verse 34. Jacob gave Esau bread. That is chapter 25 of Genesis, that is. Chapter 25, Genesis 25, verse 34. Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. He ate and drank and rose, and then what did he do? He went his way without a worry in the world. Not a worry in the world. Not a worry in the world. Esau doesn't believe there's anything to worry about. We can't convince somebody that there's something to worry about, but one thing we can do is plead with them. We can plead with them, and we can pray that the Lord will change their minds. But much of our culture, much of our culture, at least the way I see it, is whining and crying about everything that's not quite right. But the fact of the matter is, there's something else that really needs to be considered here that makes all of the things that aren't quite right right now trivial. Completely trivial. And that is the state of their soul. The state of a soul. What could be more important than the state of a soul? The trajectory that a soul is on. What is the trajectory that your soul is on? Ask yourself that question. Am I on the road to the celestial city? Charles Spurgeon I didn't know if I would use this this morning or not, but let me use this in closing. It's from his morning and evening. He, he has, on March 12th, for the evening, he has a text from 1 Samuel 30 and verse, 30, 30 and verse 13, and the text is, To whom belongest thou? In other words, do, who do you belong to? And he writes, We press the question, To whom belongest thou? Answer honestly before you give sleep to your eyes. If you are not Christ's, you are in a hard service. Run away from your cruel master. Enter into the service of the Lord of love and you will enjoy a life of blessedness. If you are Christ's, and notice what he has at his, his advice for those who are Christ. Here's his advice for those who are Christ. If you are Christ, let me advise you to do four things. You belong to Jesus, therefore, one, obey him. Let his word be your law. Let his wish be your will. And since you belong to the beloved, two, love him. Let your heart embrace him. Let your whole soul be filled with him because you belong to the Son of God. Three, trust him. Do not rest anywhere but on him. 
You belong to the King of kings, so fourthly, be decided for him. Do not waver in your loyalty. Although you are not branded outwardly, live your life so that all will know to whom you belong. If you're in Christ Jesus, everyone around you should know that you're in Christ Jesus. Everyone should know. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us these difficult tasks, Father. We thank you, Father, that you've loved us so much, Father, that you've given us these, these hard texts, Father, where we clearly see the ruin of a soul at the end of these at the end of this passage, Father, and these things have been given to warn us. Oh, Lord, warn us afresh this morning of the gravity of sharing the gospel. Warn us, brief us, oh, Father. Brief us afresh this morning of the magnitude of considering the state of our soul, Father. There's so many things that compete for our heart. Turn us to the left and to the right. Oh, Father, we see your your divine election in this passage, and we see our responsibility in this passage. And Father, Lord, we pray. We pray lastly that, Lord, you would be pleased, O Father. Be pleased, O Father, by way of your Holy Spirit, O Lord, to work your grace into the hearts of those loved ones that we've been playing ping pong with, Father. O Father, give them the grace to pick that ball up and swat it back. Oh, Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.